I'm going to admit right off the bat, I am tired this morning. We just got back from a week of Cal Camp with about 500 third through sixth graders in Gertie, Oklahoma. And every muscle in my body's a little sore. I got bug bites in all kind of inappropriate places. Uh, but the physical exhaustion is kind of it. I mean, I am so spiritually filled up. Um, this summer has been incredible, and, and really most of my life, summertime, which is creeping by fast, you know, I mean, it's we're turning around, school's going to be starting, our, we got family camp, which is kind of our last big event of the summer, our, summer su- or our uh, Sunday fun days, three weeks away, that's kind of our final summer event, so this summer's already wrapping down pretty quick, but for really my whole life, summers have always been about kids. Um, from very early on, I got involved in camp ministry, um, have going on almost 30 years of like serving in some leadership capacity at camps. And so for most of my life, when summertime gets here, we kind of put everything on pause for summer camps and for stuff for kids and that we definitely pour into our kids, try to spend as much time with them. I'm not around the office very much in the summer. I'm with my kids or I'm doing stuff with other people's kids. Summers are for kids. And uh, I kind of outlined this message a couple of weeks ago before I went to camp. And when I was in my office that week is when we were having critter camp which is for our little guys, like our kindergartners through fifth graders. And it's just such an awesome week. And so I have all that rumbling going on in the background. It's kind of outlining this message. And there's no way I can talk about anything this Sunday other than just our obligation to the next generation. And the further I get into this parent journey, I've got an 11-year-old and twins that are nine. Um, The further I get into this pastor journey of leading a church, especially a young church that's just cranking out babies left and right, and when you start to think about that, you realize like five years down the road, there's no way our youth group's not going to be huge. Like that's just inevitable at this point. Those are such cool things for me as a pastor to look at. Uh, But I was born in 1982, so I'm considered by most people an elder millennial. I didn't coin that phrase, but I definitely identify with it. And as a millennial, uh, my generation pretty much walked away from faith at about the 18, 19, 20-year-old mark. Uh, Most of us that were raised in faith took a large hiatus or have yet to return to their faith uh, about the time they got out of high school. That was just the trend. Um, And there was definitely, that's definitely part of my story. There's a lot of factors to that. Uh, The way the church was structured, I think, is definitely a part of that. But 9-11 happening, you know, during my generation, that definitely had a big impact on my faith. Um, But when I look at my generation, I I realize that we, like, were, a lot of us were raised in the faith and then walked away from it. And that's that's not good. And uh, as I look at my responsibility to the next generation, my children's generation, I want them to be encouraged to follow Jesus uh, because of the way that we present the ideas of Scripture, the ideas of faith and salvation, to understand that submitting to God is ultimate freedom. That's what I want them to understand. But gosh, those are big concepts to teach nine-year-olds, right? And so we have this dilemma. How are we going to instill our faith, the things that God has taught us through Scripture, through relationships, through circumstance, through the Holy Spirit? How are we going to like pass those off to our kids? That's a big problem to solve. That's a big question to answer. But the ideas of protecting and passing our faith on to the next generation, that's not a new problem. Uh, We're only here today because of previous generations that protected our stories of faith and passed down a faith worth having. And all throughout history and all throughout the Bible, God has issued that 
that thing that I kind of feel in my heart, this next generation obligation for us to teach our kids in every season of life, teach them to know him, teach them about him, teach them to love him and to live for him, to tell other people about him. And the challenge and the call and the obligation to the next generation is, is a big thing. That's, that's, a, that's a theme of scripture. <clears throat> so today I want to pull a story out about a guy that you probably haven't ever heard of unless you're a Bible nerd like me. It's kind of hidden. He is like an auxiliary character hidden into some of the biggest stories in the Old Testament. But this one guy we, we have through a few different spots I'm going to show you in Scripture, he was able to successfully pass his faith down through writing a song. And so today we're going to talk about this guy named Asaph. And I just call him, I, I mean, there's not a whole lot of writings about Asaph, but I just call him the symbol sounder. Because that's kind of what the Bible tells us about this guy. And in order to find out about him, we got to go back 3,000 years to about 1,000 B.C. King David, the guy that conquered Goliath, he had just became king of Israel. And he wanted to move the capital of Israel to the city of Jerusalem. And he also wanted to make it the center of worship. And long story short, in order for that to happen, he needed to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So he organized a moving party, lots of moving parts to that moving party, for the Ark. To make it to Jerusalem. And we kind of see this passage in 1 Chronicles 16, 4 through 6. It tells us how this all went down. He said, He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph, there's our guy, was the chief. So he's the chief of all these ministers of music. And next to him in rank were, I'm not going to pretend like I can say all these names, Zechariah, Jaziel, something with the SH, Jehiel, Matt, something, Iliab, Benaiah. Obed-Edom, and Jaleel. They were to play the lyres and the harps. Asaph was the sound of the cymbals. That's why I just called him Asaph the cymbal sounder. That's the title that he gives us. Benaiah and Jehazael, the priests, were to blow their trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. So that's the first time we find anything out about Asaph the cymbal sounder. Asaph is the guy who plays the cymbals in King David's band for God, as the ark was brought to Jerusalem about 1,000 B.C. So that happens, and the kingdom of Israel lasts for another 400 years until it is conquered by the nation of Babylon. They killed most of the Israelites, drug the rest to exile on the outskirts of Babylon, and about 70 years after that, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, and the Persians decided to release the Israelites to return to their homeland. This is the book of Nehemiah. And the Israelites returned in waves to their homeland, and some actually took the time to make an account of what happened in that historical event, who showed up, who did what. And in Nehemiah 7, it is not real entertaining reading, all right, it's just pretty boring if you start reading through Nehemiah 7, but it gives you a list of all the genealogy and all the lineage from the Jewish remnant who had been kicked out of Israel 470 years earlier, and a long list of these names, and there's 80 groups of descendants with totals beside each one. So they'd say, this guy had this many of his descendants show back up. And you get halfway down that list to Nehemiah 7, verse 44, and it says the musicians. It says the descendants of Asaph. That's our guy. He had 148 descendants show back up 470 years later to help rebuild the capital in Jerusalem. And the reason this had happened is because Asaph had considered the same thing we're considering as a church, our responsibility to our children 
He wanted his sons and his daughters and, and their sons and their daughters to love God the way that he loved God. And how he decided to do that was by writing songs. And Asaph didn't know that his songs were going to be included in the book of Psalms, but he wrote 12 of them. And one of those psalms became Psalm 78, the Meskel of Asaph. Asaph, or Meskel means a teaching psalm, and it was written specifically to teach his children. So this was like a family thing he did for his kids, writing a song for your kids about God. So that's the kind of context of what this is. And he didn't know that this was going to be included in Psalm 78, but it's, it's really powerful when you understand that that's why this was written and who this guy was. So in Psalm 78, starting at verse 1, says, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from an old, of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. So he's saying here, I'm going to give you all some history, some God history. I'm going to give you some stories that were passed down from the people who actually experienced them. They were told to us, and we want to make sure you know them because they're that important. Why is he doing this? He's convinced that he wants to pass his faith off to the next generation. Psalm 78, 4, this, he tells it right here. We will not hide these stories. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. Our children, just like Asaph's children, need to know who God is. And the best way to show them who God is, is to tell them what God has done. And you may, as a parent, if you're here today, probably not, but you may have bought into the lie as a parent that you don't want to influence your kids about God, that you want to give them the freedom to make their own decisions and to decide what religion. They want to be all on their own and figure it out for themselves. And that sounds really crazy to me. That's so far away from my parenting strategy. It's hard to, like, wrap that up. But I grew up with a lot of friends whose parents kind of took that philosophy, if I'm honest. Like, they didn't force their kids into any situation. They gave no instruction when it came to the things of God or church or scripture, none of it. They didn't try to help them decipher any of it. They just said, no, we're good parents because we're leaving that up to our kids to decide. The problem is kids can't figure it out for themselves because God is invisible. I don't know if y'all know that or not, but they can't see him. They can't see him. And the way we learn about God is through revelation. And God revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ coming to earth. He shows us what he was like. And then all through scripture, we're told these stories, all these stories that we're teaching our kids at Critter Camp. They're teaching your kids one of these stories right now. We did it all last week at preteen camp. We got to tell them these stories of the things that God has done so they can understand what God is like. Letting your kid figure out on their own, what God is like is like saying, I'm not going to teach my kids which foods are good for them. I'm just going to let them wander around the grocery store and figure it out for themselves. It's a bad strategy. Our kids are going to be exposed to a lot of misinformation about God. I grew up in a time in Tyler Public Schools where looking back, I recognized that every single one of my teachers was a believer. Those teachers, and maybe my mom pulled some strings to get me into the right classes. I don't doubt that. But when I look back, I mean, all the way, kindergarten, all the way up until you got, I got really into high school where, you know, you, you, there's just, you, know, you got a bunch of classes all the time. But all of those people, they were teaching faith, even if not through their words. They were implying the truths of Scripture in the way they taught these kids. And, and that's not the case anymore. We, we can't trust the public school system to tell our kids anything about God. And if they don't hear the truth from us, then they're probably never going to hear it. 
And Asaph decided that his children and their children and our children are really important. And we've got to teach them about God. And so to do that, he told them stories about God. Stories about what God had done for his people. And this is exactly what Psalm 78 is all about. He picks it up in verse 5. He says, He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. And you may say, well, when did God do that? He did that at Mount Sinai. This is Asaph's account to his family about what God did when he gave the Ten Commandments in the law. And his hope for the next generation is verse 7, that then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. And the reality is everybody's got to put their trust, their confidence in something. And so we need to teach kids what God has done so that they'll trust him. Verse 8, they would not be, they did this so they would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose heart was not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. And what you need to know, just historical context, is the first generation of people that got that law at Mount Sinai, they didn't believe it. They had a crisis of faith. And God told them to go conquer the promised land, but they were scared and they refused to go. So God let them die in the desert. I mean, that's the story. I didn't make it up. That's just how it worked. And then he gave them the law again for the second time in the book of Deuteronomy. And this time, their children believed and actually went and conquered the promised land. So that's what Asaph's doing here. For 72 verses, he's doing the same thing that we do every week in kids' class, that we plan our critter camp around, that when we take these kids to preteen camp, they are going to hear the Bible taught on average 20 times a day while they're at camp from dozens of other people besides the adults that they came with. And there is so much power in that. Asaph was doing the same thing. His strategy worked, and that's why we're doing it too. Asaph is telling his children and their children about the wonders of God who made them and loved them and is with them all the time, and he's passing the history of his people and their faith to the next generation. A little more historical context. Again, I'm a nerd. I can't help it. I love this stuff because it makes everything make more sense. When this all went down, the nation of Israel was made up of 12 tribes. And they had to decide how to divide up the land of Israel once they got in there. And there was one tribe, the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, who wasn't given any land because their job was to lead worship, make sacrifices at the temple. They didn't need to depend on the land to survive. Their livelihood came from the sacrifices of the temple. But the largest tribe, Joseph's tribe, the favorite son of his father Israel, it needed the biggest portion of land because it had the most people. And since the tribe was so large, they divided it into two tribes because Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim was the firstborn. So you need to know that so it all makes sense here. There were still 12 tribes for them to divide the land up because the 13th tribe, the Levites, didn't need any land. And in verse 9, he's talking about this, the tribe of Joseph, the specific, specifically the tribe of Ephraim, uh, Joseph's oldest son. He says, the men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back. On the day of battle, they did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. So he talks pretty bad about this tribe of Ephraim. And they did three things wrong. I mean, it says it right here in these verses. They turned their, day on the, they turned their back on the day of battle. They didn't believe that God would fight for them. So they acted in fear, not in faith. They did not live moral lives. They refused to live by the law. They ignored it. They decided it wasn't for them. And then number three, they just forgot what God had done in the past. They didn't know the stories. 
They forgot. And the tribe of Ephraim had been, they had seen all the same things that the other tribes had. And, and all throughout their history, God had been working miracles for the nation of Israel. And Ephraim explains some of those miracles, and I'm not going to get to all of them, but some of these verses, he's just reminding his kids and their kids, this is the stuff that God did. Verse 12, he did miracles in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt in the region of Zoan. Uh, Zoan was the capital of Egypt. And so this tribe, the Ephraimites, they watched God deliver their entire nation from Egypt through ten plagues. But when it came time to fight their own battle, they forgot God's faithfulness, and they turned their backs in fear in the day of battle. Verse 13 says, remember, guys, he divided the sea and led them through it. He made a wall stand, or he made water stand up like a wall. This is the story of the parting of the Red Sea. This was our main camp verse at camp was that you need to move. If you move, God is going to honor that. you got to move out. you got to move out of your old life. you got to move into your new life with Christ. you got to move together with other Christians. you got to move mountain with your faith. And then you got to move out into the world and tell other people about Jesus. That was our whole camp verse. That was the whole theme of camp. And Ephraim's teaching his kids the same exact story, the parting of the Red Sea. Remember when God did that? God's a deliverer. When his people are trapped, he always gives them a way out. But they forgot about that, and they got scared, and they turned back. Verse 14, he reminds them, he guided them with a cloud by day and with a light from the fire all night. That God is a guiding light. Y'all forgot that. That once they got out of Egypt, they needed to know where to go, so God led them by day with a cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. He never left them alone, but they had forgot that about God. Verse 15 through 16, he says, He split the rocks in the wilderness, and he gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of rocky crag and made water flow down the rivers. He's reminding them, our God is powerful. He provides for his people. He could split rocks to give water. Asaph is reminding them of all the things that God has provided. And Psalm 78 is like 72 verses long, so I'm not going to read all of it, all right? But he tells the story of God feeding a manna from heaven. And then when they started grumbling and complaining because they were just sick of eating manna, uh, he sends them quail for a change of diet. And I had to include that verse because Mr. Tuttle's here, and I imagine he would have been the head quail harvester if we were there. Psalm 78, 27, it's, this is talking about quail. It says, he rained meat down on them like dust, birds like sand on the seashore. That's a hunt, right? That's, that's a quail hunt. He's reminding them that, that God is faithful. He's faithful. He's going to take care of us. He provides for us. But then it talks about what happens when God's children are unfaithful, and he goes back to talking bad about the tribe of Ephraim. Verse 32, in spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. Verse 36, but then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him, but they were not faithful to his covenant. Verse 38, yet God, he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities. He did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. So Asaph is telling his ancestors, even when God's people aren't faithful, God still remains faithful. Verse 41, it says, again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day he redeemed them from the oppression, the day he displayed his signs in Egypt, the wonders in the region of Zoan. When we forget what God has done, we start living by sight and not by faith. And Asaph is teaching lessons about God to generations to come. He's using stories of God's faithfulness 
and people's unfaithfulness so that we can learn who God is and how he deals with us because we're all unfaithful just like Israel. So I'm going to skip all the way down to the final chorus. And remember, we've been referencing this tribe of Ephraim. It was one of the largest tribes and how they turned back when, when, when stuff got hard, they got scared, they took tail and ran. And through that, Asaph explains why Jesus, the Messiah, came from the tribe of Judah. And remember, this was written a long time, a thousand years before Jesus showed up. But it shows why Jesus ultimately came out of the tribe of Judah and not from the leading tribe of Ephraim. Verse 6 to 7 says, Then he, meaning God, rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built a sanctuary like heights, like the earth that he established forever. Verse 70, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them well with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. So that city of Jerusalem that sits on Mount Sinai, that was in the territory of Judah. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was moved to. David is the king, and he is from the tribe of Judah. And we know that the Messiah, Jesus, comes from the tribe of Judah. And Asaph says that God chose the tribe of Judah because Ephraim turned back. They lost faith. They forgot what God had been done for them. This is why so, it's so important to remember what God has done for us. I mean, it's, it's kind of the whole ballgame when it comes to the next generation. We can't see God, so we have to trust God without seeing him. And we can't see him, but we can hear and remember what he's done. We can remember those things, we can trust in those things, and we can choose to walk by faith. Asaph looked at his kids, and he wanted them to have the kind of faith he had. And he decided he was going to help them by writing this song that ended up becoming Psalm 78. And it was so effective that his children's children times 30 for 470 years, right? Lots of generations there. They were still singing God's praises all that time later when they showed back up to Jerusalem. So for those of us today reading this song 3,000 years later, there is still a God who is with us and is faithful, but he's invisible. You can't see him, but you can see him for what he does. You can see him provide, you can see him protect, you can see him encourage and comfort in your life. And it is our job to tell our children and our grandchildren about who he is and what he's done. Tell them about all these Bible stories. That's why we spend so much time on that stuff. We've got to tell them about his works through Scripture. But we also need to tell them about the new stuff he's doing, even in our own families. I mean, that's, that's our obligation. And Asaph's solution to passing on faith was simple and effective. He says, man, if my kids are going to know about God, I have to tell them. That's my job. So real quick, I want to give you three things. How to pass on your faith to future generations. Number one, teach them what God has done. The Bible is full of stories of God's guidance, provision, and protection. We need to tell these stories to our kids. That's high priority at every kids' event we're going to do at this church is explaining what God did. He did something awesome. You need to keep these stories in front of our kids as much as possible. Number two, we need to teach them that God doesn't change. 
God doesn't change. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What God has done in the past, guys, he's going to continue to do in the future. What God did for the children of Israel, he'll do for our children too. And so we need to remind them that not only did God do all this stuff a long time ago, God hasn't changed. He still does that stuff today. He still provides. He still protects. He still makes a way. He's the same God. He hasn't changed. And number three, you need to teach them what God has done for your family. And I can't do that for you. You've got to do that for your family. Tell your children about how you decided to give your life to Jesus Christ. Tell them how God led you to your job. Tell them how he led you to your friends and your your spouse and this church. We need to tell our kids stories about the times where God has provided for us when we needed him. This is important. Tell them how God brought them into your life. Tell them how they were formed in their mother's womb, how God has watched over them and protected from the very beginning. We need to tell these stories to our kids. It's important. And dads love to tell stories, and kids love, I love for my dad to tell me a story about something wild he did in high school. To this day, that's exciting. I love to hear those stories. My kids already show that. They want to know all the bad stuff I've done. And it's cool. I love telling the hunting stories and the football stories and the wild Thursday night stories, but we got to tell our God stories too. And for those of you without children, you still have this next generation obligation. There are lots of opportunities for you to help shape the next generation by getting involved in our kids and our youth ministry, by signing up to go to a sponsor at camp. If you're one of our guys, you can invest in the next generation. We're putting a lot of resources into that 17 to 21-year-old young guy deal right now. That's an opportunity for you to jump in and invest in the next generation. But Asaph says, that key verse, Psalm 78, verse 4, says, We will not hide, hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation his praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. And so my encouragement for you, my challenge for you as we wrap up this morning right here at the end of the summer, is before you go back to school, you got like three, four weeks, right? Tell your kids some God stories. Do that. Do that. Pick one to tell them this week. Just, Just make a little note. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And what I have found is the more I do it, the more my kids ask me to do it. That's such a cool thing. And this week, I kind of got to live out that story. I got to do that because the the camp that we were at this week, I I said this a couple of weeks ago, I was on the initial team that started that camp. And the very first year we had it, we had 150 people, adults and all. And quickly, we outgrew that facility. We moved to different spots. Um, and the first year we came back from camp, I proposed to Brittany the day we got back from that very first AFCC Cal camp. And so to be at the beginning of something, like Brittany and I got to have the opportunity to be at the beginning of that, to get to go to this time two weeks, I've, I've, I've done every job at that camp. I've been the camp pastor, I've been the director, I've been the games organizer, I've been a clinician, I've been a wrangler, I've done every job you could do. But when I get to go with my own kids, as just a sponsor. I'm just there to enjoy this with my kids. Guys, I received a level of joy this week that I just can't explain. I just can't explain. And when I see kids that were in my youth group that are still showing up in their late 20s, early 30s, dragging their own kids because they keep wanting to be a part of this, they keep wanting to invest, they realize what that played in their life. Guys, man, that's a big God story in my life. 
and to see those investments that I made years ago, I didn't know I was going to have two little wild cowboys that I wanted to send to this camp, and that's probably the only summer camp in America that can handle my two boys, all right? And so this week I have had, yeah, Jim knows, he was there from the beginning. He's nodding because he saw the whole thing unfold. <laughs> Guys, share these stories with your kids. This has been a life-changing story for me. And I, and I, I get to see all of the times that I invested. Sometimes I wasn't even investing. I wasn't even showing up to camp for the right reasons. I was trying to pick up a girl or I was trying to look cool or I was trying to whatever. But God still blessed it. He blessed it in my life. And every Every, every, every investment I've made in the next generation was totally worth it. I don't regret a single one of them. And you won't either. So we need to take this next generation stuff seriously. we got to teach them who God is. Tell them these stories. Remind him that he does not change. The same God that did all that stuff will still do it today. And then share your stories of faith. What God has done in your life and in your family and how he's working in their lives. That's our obligation. That's our obligation. Let me pray for us. Lord. Thank you for the previous generation before me. Thank you for good parents, good grandparents. Thank you for two grandfathers who turned the tide in my family, who stepped out of some really wild circumstances and chose you. I'm only here today because they turned the tide. I thank you for previous generations that have invested in all of us, and I pray that we will not drop the ball now, God. We have been given something great. We have a rare opportunity to pass a real faith off to the next generation, to tell them who you are, that you are the same God now that parted the Red Sea. You continue to make ways in our lives now, God, and that we would be open and honest about the things you have fixed in our lives, the situations you've redeemed, the relationships that you've restored, because they're all your stories. You get the glory for those, and we do not need to be ashamed to share those stories with our kids. So I pray you would continue to burden me and this church with that obligation for our kids and for our kids' kids. We thank you for Asaph, one man who wrote a song to his kids that we're still learning from 3,000 years later. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.